Welcome back to the 10 Blocks podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Coming up on today's show, I talk with economist and writer Allison Schrager. Allison recently joined the Manhattan Institute as a senior fellow, and we're happy to have her back for a second appearance on the 10 Blocks podcast. She's written a piece for City Journal that we posted online over the weekend. It's called Propeller of Growth. You can find it on our website, and we'll link to it in the description. That's it for the introduction. After the music, we'll be joined by Allison Schrager. Hello again, everyone. This is Brian Anderson. Joining me in the studio is economist Allison Schrager. Allison is the newest senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Her new book, which we talked about last time she was on the podcast, is called An Economist Walks into a Brothel and Other Unexpected Places to Understand Risk. You can follow her on Twitter at Allison Schrager. Allison, thanks for joining us and welcome to the Manhattan Institute. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I want to focus on this piece you've just written for City Journal, which really gets to the heart of a big ongoing interest of yours. Uh, the, The article is called Propeller of Growth, and in it you write, risk, for better or worse, is the heart of economic growth, and successfully apportioning it, not avoiding it, is the key to prosperity. Can you explain your reasoning for why risk is so important to a flourishing economy? Well, I think when we think about risk, we always think of something to avoid or to eliminate. But risk is both good and bad. Risk is the upside. It's the returns from investment. If it goes well, it is the benefit of being an entrepreneur, entrepreneur, which is a very risky endeavor. Um, And as you can see, all the sort of top um, Fortune 400 winners, almost all the top 10 were people who made their own money as an entrepreneur. They took a big risk. Innovation, as I said, is the sort of lifeblood of the economy. It what propels economic growth, and innovation is inherently a very risky endeavor. Is that it's you know, is it what entrepreneurship is about is innovation, and is it? But when you innovate, the odds are it's not going to work out. It's not going to be a good innovation. It's not going to be innovation that has a market for it. So that's why said risk is really what moves economies forward. As you note in this piece, there are two significant ways that the federal government provides some protection against economic risk. You have unemployment insurance and then Social Security. Unemployment uh, pools risks for workers. Social Security, you know, diversifies risk across generations. Leaving aside uh, the unemployment insurance question, which is is very fraught, there's been a lot of talk recently about uh, expanding Social Security. Mm -hmm. So the um, Elizabeth Warren campaign uh, for instance, proposes we raise benefits by, I think, $200 per month and to pay for it by raising taxes on the wealthy. Uh, what do you think about her proposal? Do we really need to do that uh, for Social Security? Well, no, because um, I think this is what's missing from policy discussions is an appreciation for risk, because really the purpose of policy is to do some risk reduction. We don't, I don't think anyone, even the most diehard free markers, want to live 
in a society where just one stroke of bad luck leaves you on the street and destitute. It is the role of government to provide the sort of that basic safety net. And often, you know, what we say in economics is diversification is more efficient. If you diversify across outcomes, you get more efficient outcomes, which means just you can get ri- so risk is the so if taking risk is sort of the cost of going for more, but when we say something's efficient, it means that you don't take any more risk than necessary. And this mm-hmm. is done through diversifying. But sometimes you just can't diversify. Like, suppose, uh, again, you, you know, you you want to diversify your the experience that you have with your 401k. Maybe you retire when the market's down, someone else retires when the market's up. You'd want to pull your risk across you and that person, but there might not be a market for that. You know, it might not just not be um, cost effective or there might be regulations that um, prevent it from doing in the private sector. So this is where you have some scope for government is to pool risk across, say, generations. But the problem is, is there's only a limit of diversification. Diversification can only do so much for you. And I think the problem with Social Security is, you know, while there is some benefit for diversification, there's also a huge systematic risk, which is the aging population. Mm -hmm. So when you have a population that's getting progressively younger, you have this, it's not even a risk, it's almost like a certainty that this is becoming less and less viable. So I think there's a role for government in retirement, but it's not them taking on all the risk. That would actually be inefficient. There's a lot of risk around moving money into the future. The government has a role to take some of it, but individuals also have to take some of that. It's just, that's just more efficient and fair to generations, future generations. So expanding the program, where it already requires, you know, so it takes up a significant amount of people's retirement income and also faces an aging population problem, would just be taking it too far. That's going to the point of inefficiency where the government taking, is taking on all the risk. And the benefits of diversification there just sort of start to peter out. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Um, you note in your piece as well some recent uh, other examples of government trying to reduce risk for workers. Um, one of these is in California, which has recently enacted a law that has turned out to be very controversial, regulating gig work or mm-hmm. freelance work. Uh, if our listeners, which may be the case, aren't aware of the situation in California, maybe you could talk a little bit about that new law, what it's trying to do and uh, why there has been a pushback against it already. Well, I think a lot of people look at gig work and assume that it's it's not as good as regular work. Like having a job where you have full employment protections, you get unemployment insurance, you get benefits, you know, it's a little little harder to fire people. You have that security. So they look at gig work and they figure, well, you don't have all those things. You're effectively on demand. You don't have regular hours. You know, you, you're not guaranteed a certain amount of pay, and this just must be bad. But um, really, you know, a lot of people like the flexibility. And in fact, the data shows any way we think gig work is overtaking the economy, it's actually not. The number of people involved in contract work as their primary job has actually been declining over time. What is increasing is you see increasing numbers of households who have a primary job and do gig work as like a side hustle. So they're, they're just adding to their income. They're adding and also smoothing income shocks. Mm-hmm. So this actually provides a good hedge against income shocks. Maybe even you lose your job. Maybe you have unstable income. Or, you know, there's also evidence people are working fewer hours. So, you know, they have more time to sort of boost their income and reduce income risk by having multiple sources of income. But the key is, is that gig work has to be flexible for this to work because you have another job. Mm-hmm. So you need something you can do on the side when you feel like it or when you're able to. So AB5 is actually, real, which is this law in California, which in fact is 
making it very difficult to hire a contract worker. You have to go through a fairly rigorous test in court to prove that this person is indeed, you know, not critical to the mission of the firm, you know, that they have adequate market power. It's just very hard. Well, that costs money right in and of itself for a company that's operating that way, Yeah, right? so the incentive is just to hire fewer people and make them employees, um, which just it takes away this very valuable, um, I don't know if you've noticed, but whenever I've taken a Lyft or an Uber in California, people are a lot chattier, I guess, than they are mm-hmm. than drivers here, where there's, I guess, still that veneer professionalism because we have more of a cab culture. And like every Uber or Lyft driver I've ever had has told me about their primary job and how this is what they do on yeah, the that's side. Yeah, that's been my experience as well in, in Austin and uh, in California, for sure. Yeah, it's almost like they want you to know, hey, this isn't my regular job. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm like you. And it's almost like taking a ride from a friend. But um, I say, I well, think... Well, a, a lot of them are actors, in my yeah. experience, in L.A. anyway. Well, and it is very valuable for that because right. that way, you know, they can go to auditions. Like the flexibility is what makes it valuable. But if you make someone an employee, you necessarily take away that flexibility. And certainly if you're an actor and have very variable income, that sort of basic income floor. So I think it's sort of a misunderstanding of risk. People look at gig work and say, oh, that looks risky because I'm used to employment looking like this. But now we're in a new world where you can have very different employment relationships, and they, in fact, might look risky to outsiders, but if you really look a lot closer, actually are reducing risk for people. And so by taking away the flexibility, you're, in fact, making people's income more variable. Well, you're certainly seeing this uh, with writers who are situated in California. A lot of them um, are suddenly discovering that they can't freelance anymore, uh, and that's, uh, that's very worrisome. It is, especially, as I said, as journalists now, it's a very precarious job. You want to get as many bylines out there as possible. Mm-hmm. So not having access to be doing freelance is really difficult as for a lot of industries, not just journalists. But I think we hear about journalists a lot because you know they have a platform. Now, one of the uh, biggest issues that has cropped up in the Democratic presidential primary so far is student debt. Mm-hmm. Uh, both Bernie Sanders and uh, Warren have said that they would uh, make college basically free and they take steps to cancel existing student debt in addition to other proposals they're making. In your CJ piece, you describe this as eliminating the risks associated with middle class wealth. What did you mean by that? Could you elaborate a little bit? All right. So like a lot of life cycle economists, I look at income as an asset the way I'd look at uh, an asset in your portfolio right, like a financial asset. And so there's just overwhelming evidence that having a college degree not only means, it doesn't mean you're going to earn more than everyone else right out of college, but what it does mean is two things. Both your income grows faster than if you didn't have a college degree and that it's less variable. You have lower spells of unemployment. You're less likely to lose your job during a recession. If you do lose your job, you're going to have a shorter spell of unemployment. So a lot of ways, it's not, you don't just go to college to earn more. You also, it's a great risk reduction strategy. So the idea that we're going to make, you know, use, we have limited resources mm-hmm. to reduce sort of, I mean, it is an investment. It's an investment that probably pays off more than any other investment I can think of. But to effectively make that a free investment, when we have people, certainly other people in this country who don't have that sort of insurance, who definitely are more needing or worthy of resources or to face a lot more income risk than they do, it just doesn't really make a lot of sense. What might be some alternative uh, policies that would, in your view, make a difference with regards to uh, risk reduction? Are there any areas where we're not doing a good job of that we could find uh, 
you know, intelligent ways to support them? Well, I think certainly, I mean, one big thing that jumps out at me is the market for long-term care. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is a huge burden on a lot of families that often involve people having to be caregivers and give up their income. And there's really no functioning insurance market for long-term care because it's just not cost-effective for insurance companies. They've tried to offer these policies. They tend to lose money on them, so they keep dragging, uh, jacking up their premiums, still losing money despite very expensive premiums. So it's effectively a non-functioning market. And it's not covered, a lot of people don't realize it until too late. It's not covered by Medicare. It's only covered by Medicaid. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of different things we could do. But I think government intervention in the long-term care market probably definitely makes a lot more sense than expanding Social Security. Thanks, Allison. Don't forget to check out Allison Schrager's piece for City Journal. It's on our website. It's called Propeller for Growth. You should also check out her terrific book, An Economist Walks Into a Brothel, which we discussed on a previous podcast and is filled with real-world concrete stories illustrating different ways of assessing and managing risk. You can find it on Amazon, and we'll link to it in the description. You can follow Allison on Twitter, at Allison Schrager. And you can also, of course, find City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at City, City Journal underscore MI. And always, if you've liked what you've heard on the podcast, give us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and thanks very much, Allison, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.